Hi, I'm Luke, and I, I, I'm used to actually not using microphones very much because I work in this small church, and in this small church, I can actually shout, and I can basically cover the whole church, which, which is a lovely feeling, so you never have to worry about standing and speaking into a microphone like this, which is very helpful. Um, tonight, uh, it's really exciting to be able to speak um, to this Bible track. You've chosen the right track, because the Bible is important, and it's wonderful, um, th- this is my Bible. I brought it to the Bible track. My grandparents gave me this Bible when I was 18, and I love my Bible, and I take it everywhere. Um, anyway, I don't know why I told you that. But uh, <laughs> we're going to um, read the passage, so I'll just press these buttons here. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. Ah, very good. Right. So let's just read this passage um, and see what we're talking about tonight. Um, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Amen. Um, yeah. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? It's got one of the most sort of famous passages in all of scripture. This kind of like, not what I will, but what you will. Very poignant, very amazing. This is, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. And he is like, like oil, uh, like the olives being crushed to make oil. He is being crushed in this garden. That there is sort of a deep pain we will see in this as we go into this. Um, but it's all because of this cup. And that's the title of this talk, The Cup. Um, I, I remember years ago, I, I, I was, I think I was like a teenager, I was like 15, and this old lady from church, she, she said, oh, I, I can't fix my TV, um, the aerial's broken, can you come to my house and fix it? And I was like, oh, okay, fine. So, so I, I go off to this house, and as I walk in, there's piles of stuff everywhere. It's like this like hoarder's place, and you're kind of like, just kind of like trying to get around all these boxes, get in, and then you suddenly see the sitting room, and you're like, oh no. And you see the TV, and I very quickly see that it's because the aerial isn't plugged in, is why her TV's not working. And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, yeah, all right, I, 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 if I move it over there a little bit, you can plug it in, there's the aerial socket. And she's like, oh, thank you. And, and I, I start kind of moving stuff around, and she, she goes, would you like a glass of water? And I was like, oh, that would be nice, thank you. You know, hard work lifting things and stuff. She comes back with this glass. And this glass is what, it's like one of those plastic beakers with like, like sort of little flowers around. It's supposed to be nice, but this is horrible. It is like, it's dirty. It's like flaky around the edge. And when you look inside, you're like, that water, that water is not see-through. I can't see the bottom. What have you given me? She gives this glass in my hand, and I'm like, down on the table and I carried on moving the stuff and I kind of finished and she was all very thankful and good and I, I went to leave and she said you haven't had your water yet <laughs> so she picks up the water 
and she hands it to me, and I'm like, and I look at it, it's looking worse, and I'm like, fuck, and there's that kind of feeling of gaggingness inside of me, and oh, it, it was a horrible feeling, and my, my silly story is to illustrate something, in this garden, I'm not quite sure what it is, no, 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 I, I do, well, it's like Jago's stories, he gets halfway through a story about his child, and you're suddenly like, is he just putting a story about his child? No, no, okay, that's a personal thing. Um, I've lost my flow now. Um, so Jesus, in the garden, is talking about a cup. He's talking about a cup, which is way more disgusting, way more terrifying than this old lady plastic beaker. It, it is something that is going to cause him immense pain and immense sorrow. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, so I just want us to look, kind of, we're going to break kind of what we're talking about down into three different sections, and I think I can press them here. Um, so, so I stole these from Charles Spurgeon, which is why they're slightly strange language. But uh, the humanity and suffering of Jesus, the intolerable evil of sin, and the matchless love of Jesus. These are three kind of sections we're just going to break this down into. And we're going to start of looking at the humanity and the suffering of Jesus in that garden. Uh, we can see, kind of like, as he walks into the garden, something happens to him. This is the divine son of God, who's been going throughout the Gospel of Mark. You've seen him here healing the sick, uh, feeding the 5,000. He's been kind of calming the seas. He's been doing all these things, yet at that moment, he seems broken. He seems broken. And, and I, I'd like you to get into twos and threes, um, and you get the first stab at looking at this passage together. Um, there are three questions on your sheet, and I'm going to give you a few minutes uh, to go through this. Um, so uh, here are the three questions. So I'm just going to give you five minutes, I think, on your sheet. So in twos and threes, if you just like to ask each other these questions, you'll need the passage in front of you, which hopefully should also be in your sheet. Um, and, yeah, go for it. No, just um, have a look. That's all right. Okay, wonderful. Should we start drawing our discussions to a close? Wonderful. I, I'm not sure uh, how those discussions went, um, particularly that last question, that question about heaviness. I, I, I'm not sure that... I, I looked at the translation of the King James Bible for this verse, um, the verse that says... Let's put it up now. Gosh, it's going to be hard. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled, and it said he became very heavy and sore amazed, it said. So, very heavy. I, I'm not sure if you felt that feeling. Um, I, I, I just have. At many points in my life, there, there's been these points of that overwhelming sadness. And that, that, that's the kind of picture it's painting here. This, this overwhelming sadness that comes in. Um, this happens at kind of particular points. The loss of loved ones. I think of my grandma's funeral. I was overwhelmed with sadness. I remember... Breakups. I, uh, there was a breakup of a significant girlfriend who, it was a big thing. It overwhelmed me for days. I, I was looking down, darkness. I couldn't look forward. I, not getting jobs. Things, things like this. There's lots of moments in our lives where we might feel overwhelmed by sadness. 
and it sort of feels like it's never going to win. It feels sad to a point that we can't control. I remember once, like, standing in the mirror, just standing in front of a mirror and looking at it and seeing sort of, seeing a man crying, but, like, I wasn't that man. You know, that, that kind of grief that gets you in such a deep way that you don't know how to control it anymore. Um, there's that sort of feeling there of what's happening in the garden, of what's happening with Jesus. But that there seems to be more. You see, there's that overwhelming ser- uh, uh, kind of sorrow, but there's this bit... Sorry? The Garden of Gethsemane. So, so, uh, Jesus. Yeah, it says at the top. It goes, um, oh, the place called Gethsemane. Okay, the place called Gethsemane was a garden outside of Jerusalem. So, it went into the, uh, the olive uh, fields, and it was the bottom, so it was where the olives got pressed, which is the thing I was saying earlier. So, yeah, no, it's really interesting. If you ever get to go there, um, it's amazing out in Jerusalem. You can really picture these kind of scenes. Um, you can picture Jesus going outside the city to this little secluded garden, which is likely to be like a walled garden. And, and it's kind of, it's wonderful to just sit there and pray because you can really kind of feel this and you read these verses here and it deeply affects you. Something like, yeah, if you can ever do that, that's a wonderful experience to have. Um, so, so what was I saying? He, so he's in the garden. That, that bit, sore amazed, is that, that the, the King James' translation. And it conveys part of the word which this passage doesn't which shows a sort of almost a surprise. As he walks into the garden, he is almost surprised to have this sorrow. Something hits him which he has never felt before. And it says in verse 34, I I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You see, Jesus' uh, sorrow has pushed him to a point of emotional turmoil that is kind of on the limits of what is possible. And so close to the limits, it says actually in Luke's gospel, if you read this passage, that, that he believed, he swept drops of blood. The pressure inside of him has built up so much. The anguish inside of him is so strong that he's feeling something that I, I think none of us have ever quite got to that point. But I mean, the real thing that we really see, and the first part that I, I want us to see in this passage is that we see in this Jesus' humanity. We see him a man. A man who has been broken by something. Something has come and hit him and it has broken him. And it means that each of us, in our places, when we hit those kind of barriers in our lives, those places of sorrow, we can look to Jesus and know that he knows exactly how we're feeling and has felt it a hundred times worse. We see in the garden sorrow and anguish like never seen before. Um, The second title I I wanted us to go on to is The Intolerable Evil of God. Now, I thought about changing the word intolerable, because you don't generally use the word intolerable. I can hardly say it. But um, so so this is Charles Spurgeon has used this word. But it's such a great word, and I couldn't think of a word to replace it. Um, And that's sort of the the summary of this. But uh, let me explain what I mean. Um, So we need to work out what is it that Jesus uh, has felt? What has hit Jesus in this garden that has knocked him sideways so, so much? And we see it in verse 36. You see it on your sheets. Um, It says in verse 36 about this cup. He, He cries out, Abba, Father, this kind of like desperate plea to his father. Take this cup from me, he says. 
What is this cup, though? We talked about plastic beakers earlier. It's way worse than plastic beakers. The idea of a cup is in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, actually, it's very interesting. Um, actually, a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Mark, you see a place where John and James, his, um, his disciples, ask him, can we sit with you on your left and your right hand in your glory? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink? This is an idea, a picture, which they, they've got in their minds, and it comes from the Old Testament. And there's lots of different references. I spent quite a while trying to choose which reference to take, but quite a lot of them. There's ones in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, um, uh, and in Isaiah, and they all point to the same event, a huge event in Israel's history, which was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. I just want to read you a little bit out of Isaiah uh, about what, what it says there. Awake, awake. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you have drained, uh, uh, have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. You see, he's using this in a prophecy about what is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. And, I mean, the records of this kind of, like, this conquest by the Babylonians are vicious if you look at them. You, you see the Babylonians came in and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they starved them out. They starved them until they, there were people dying on the streets, it says. And, and then you get to a point where they, then they go in and they, they kill an awful lot of people and they take a lot of people off into exile. And on top of that, they go into the temple of God. They go into the temple of God and destroy it. Now, the temple of God is the picture of God being with his people. It's the place they can go and meet with God. So in this act, they've taken away their special bond with God, their ability to go to God. The Jews no longer had it. This was severe. There was shame, there was death, and there was banishment from God's side. This was huge. And if you read kind of other bits in Isaiah and lots of the other prophets, you see it explained about why this had happened. This has happened because of the sin of the people, because the people had sinned and turned away from God. Over and over again, they had turned away from God. You see, this cup, this cup is a picture of God's divine judgment poured out on injustice. And we need to sort of hold on to that picture. So, so, so back to the garden. We see Jesus and he walks into the garden and something takes him by surprise. It causes him such intense grief. And we need to think, what is that? Is it the physical pain he's going to endure on the cross? He knew about that already. He's been speaking about that all through his gospel. At no other point has he suddenly got surprised by the physical pain he'll uh, kind of endure. Secondly, is it the betrayal of his friends? Is it the betrayal and the desertion of all of his disciples, which is about to happen? He predicted that, literally in the last chapter, he'd said, you will all desert me. And that didn't send him into this grief. Something else, far worse than the physical pain of the cross, far worse than the desertion of all his friends was about to come. He looks at the cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world. Not just the sin of a city like Jerusalem, but the sin of every single person 
ever to live and ever to live before and after. The eternal sin of every person. And he sees that and the size of it and the size of the sin and the wrath kind of hits him. I I, want to just... um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, uh, speaks on this passage and he's got... Um, a wonderful little section which explains this far better than I do that what Jesus was kind of like what in Spurgeon's words Jesus is feeling at that time Um, the saviour's mind was intently fixed upon the dreadful nature of sin sin had always been abhorrent to him but now his thoughts were engrossed with it he saw its worst and deadly nature its heinous character and horrible aim Probably at this time, beyond any former period, he had as man a view of the wide range and all-pervading evil of sin and a sense of the blackness of its darkness and the desperateness of its guilt as being a direct attack upon the throne and upon the very being of God. They're, They're really sort of powerful words and I, I, I take them away. He summarised something which is very deep there, and it's actually something quite interesting to read again later. Um, but So Jesus is faced by this dreadful nature of sin and God's wrath at the nature of sin in the world. And he sees what he is about to have to go through. He sees what is going to be poured on him on the cross. And even kind of like a whiff of this that the knowledge of it is so uh, powerful and painful that he can't endure it. He is wrestling with it in the garden. His frail um, human form can hardly cope, so he sweats these drops of blood. Let's step away from Jesus. Let's have a look at what the disciples were doing. What were the disciples doing? So Jesus is wrestling with the sin that people were feeling. What were the disciples doing? I've got a few questions. I'm going to give you five minutes for those questions. I'll stick them up on the screen. Okay, shall we um, start coming back together now? How did the disciples do in the garden? Does anyone want to give me a quick answer? Good? Bad? Bad. Well, yeah, no. yeah, no, they didn't do great. <laughs> so so they're, they're asked to stay awake, they stay, to stay and keep watch. And actually you see it's all the end of the pa- passage. The one who spots Judas coming is Jesus himself. They, they didn't even keep watch. So three times they fall asleep. It, it kind of shows you, kind of like, it's a little prelude to Peter's denial, which will come a little bit later in the next chapter, um, three denials. You, you see a picture of kind of Jesus on one hand in this garden, struggling so hard, kind of like anguish there is, his agony just to save the people who were just falling asleep over here and can't even keep awake for kind of one night to help them out. And I, I mean, th- this is the nature of our kind of frailty as humans, our frailty as people. Uh, we have these good intentions. And back in the previous chapters, you hear Peter sort of saying, I'll never desert you. 
we have these good intentions, but we seem to just trip and fall again and again. And this is what we see in the garden. But one of the most amazing things is Jesus is going through probably the greatest greatest agony ever felt by anyone. Yet, three times he gets up to go and check on the disciples. This is Jesus' love for us. That even though we are sort of falling asleep, as it were, and Jesus is going through this pain, he comes to us. He comes to check how we are, how we're doing in our little... (laughs) in our little kind of lives, in our little jobs. He's encouraging us, helping us. And then he goes back and he suffers more. This is sort of the love of Jesus. And that's the last section I just want to talk about. The matchless love of Jesus. Um, I guess we can look at this and we go, Jesus is going through all this because of the wrath of God. And yes, he is. And lots of people will say... The wrath of God. I, I don't really like this concept where we, we talk about wrath and sin. And actually, I mean, we hardly ever use this word wrath. But it is a picture of God's anger. But then most people probably prefer the loving God, eh? We, we prefer a loving God rather than an angry God. Of course we do. We, we want this loving God. But I, there's this kind of picture here of um, can loving people be angry? And I, I believe that a loving person can be angry and can actually be angry because of love, not in spite of it. I, I remember this is... I've got another teenage story for some reason. I'm on a teenage story night. But um, when I was 18, I, I, I was playing rugby and we went out for like an end-of-season dinner and we are in a big um, bar and we had some food and all the dads were there as well. My dad had always come along with me um, to watch me play rugby. So it was kind of father-son's thing, and we were having a lot of fun. But my, my dad had just had a heart operation, so I, I knew he was a bit weak, and I was just keeping an eye. And at one point, I just saw out the corner of my eye someone pushing my dad, this random guy in the bar pushing my dad. And I don't know, just something inside of me, you know, my little fists went like this. I marched over, and I stood in the way. And I remember the thought that went through my, fa- my head. Why have you done this? <laughs> You're 18 and that guy's huge. I'm like, no, I'm going to protect my dad. And then I was like, right, I have to say something. Get lost. And I, it was going to be, get lost. But it was kind of came out in my little voice, get lost. And, and he walked away and I felt kind of excited about this. I, I think possibly it had something to do with half of my rugby team following me. But I didn't know that at the time. But I, it's funny, isn't it? When we love someone, we get angry particularly if they seem to be in danger, particularly if they seem to be in trouble, we will get angry. And actually, the things we love the most, we'll get the most angry about. And and this is the picture I I want you to try and hold in your minds about God. God created this beautiful, perfect world, and he created you and me in his image. Perfect. And then sin came. Sin ruined us. Ruin creation. Ruin the relationship we had with God. Now, should God be angry about this? Should God be upset about this? I think he should be. I think he should be really upset. Because he loves us so much. And he loves the creation and the relationship that we had and we were created to have. And it's all ruined. He wouldn't be a loving God if he wasn't angry at that happening. 
That's my picture of wrath. Uh, how actually it's a wrath of love. A wrath come out of pure love for us is what is coming out there. Um, I, I think the thing we see in the garden um, is Jesus still in intense suffering, though. In intense suffering. And he's choosing, he's choosing to go to the cross to drink this cup. But he is in suffering. And Tim Keller says this wonderful thing um, in his book about suffering. He says, Suffering happens when the gap between your desire, the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life, um, it, when there's a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. And the bigger the gap gets, the more suffering. So, so, so imagine the suffering is sort of the desires of my heart is to have food, but I'm in a circumstance where I can't have food. Suffering. Uh, my desire is to have a wife, um, but I don't could have a wife. Decision, right? Sorry? Could be a wife decision. Uh, maybe in some circumstances, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that separation between what you want to happen and what you um, what, what is actually happening, whether that's a right decision or not, maybe. But we'll come on to that. That's actually quite a good prelude. But so, how do we kind of like sort that out? You see, Jesus is in the garden, and his circumstances are terrible. His circumstances, he stands, and he has to. He's going to have to drink this cup, and the agony of doing that is so great. But the desire of his heart is for us. There is a great separation between the two, and it creates suffering. I just want you to look at another little set of questions um, and just think about this idea of suffering and the desires of our heart and the circumstances of our life, which hopefully come up there. Okay. So how do we get out of suffering? How do we find a way out of a suffering, particularly described as this. So if suffering is described this way, there's two options. We have an option to either change, uh, to change the desires of our heart. And I, I guess that's sort of like maybe a more Buddhist, maybe more stoic kind of uh, picture of how you deal with your suffering in your life. You suppress the feelings. You kind of, you, you rein it in, as it were. You kind of like just keep it inside. You hold it down. And that, that's one way to deal with it. And sometimes that's a good thing to do. On the other side, it's sort of more of a, probably more of a Western idea, which is to change the circumstances to come towards the desires. So maybe like, we'll do that from, maybe we'll change our partner, maybe we'll change our job, maybe we'll kind of do a course or something and get our skills up. Or there's lots of different ways we change circumstances. And particularly in the West, we'll do this a lot of kind of moving around trying to find a place where we have the least kind of suffering, as it were, sorting out our problems by changing circumstance. Jesus doesn't either. And, and it's just an interesting one to look at, because <laughs> I, I'm ruining my own thing. But, um, so, so he doesn't take, change his emotions, does he? Because we, we see him in here. Like, I mean, this is not a stoic. This isn't a man who's suppressed his feelings. You see them flooding out of him. His feelings of pain, his feelings of distress, they're coming out of him. So we see he's not suppressing his feelings. On the other side, he's not changing his circumstances either, we see. 
So, so let's read that verse, 36, which is just a really important verse. Um, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, he doesn't change his circumstance there. He turns to the Father and he says, this is getting really hard. This is getting so hard. And he asks for this cup to pass by. But not what I will, but what you will. He turns to his Father and he loves him in a strange sort of way. He turns to his Father and he loves him so much that he trusts that God will be sorting this out. That God has a greater plan, which he can't quite see in the midst of his pain and his suffering. Because at that moment, his head's down. Like I was talking about earlier, that sort of darkness has come in and he just can't see in front of him. Jesus, in that moment, trusts in the Father. It takes a great deal of love to say those words, actually to anyone, to say those words, not what I will, but what you will. Is there anyone in your life on big decisions that you would say that to? There's probably a few trusted friends, but on the deepest, deepest things, that is still very hard to do, to hand over control of your life to someone else. It takes a huge amount of love. And that's what Jesus has here. He loves his Father, and loves his Father so much that he trusts him, even in the midst of this agony. Um, I just want to read to you, just to finish my bit, uh, uh, just a little bit from a Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And he speaks on this. Uh, in his sermon, it's called Christ's Agony, and it, it is wonderful. Quite a lot of these, uh, the Spurgeon stuff, uh, uh, and um, Jonathan Edwards up online, all this stuff. So you can just search for these kind of things. But it is wonderful, the whole thing. But this is just a segment. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. There are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for the wickedness that was so great. It was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before enduring them. This was given in his agony. And we feel that agony too. This, um, as I've looked at this over the last few weeks, it's just really hit me, kind of like, the strength of this. Jesus' agony. We don't think about Jesus in agony much. But he was, and he was in agony for each one of us. And we so easily fall asleep like the disciples. We forget the extent of our sin, the extent of kind of the badness that we've brought into the world. But also, what we do is we really forget how much 
Jesus loved us in this act. That he would go through that suffering and would stoop so low just to pick us back up again. And we have kind of a really big choice to make. A really big choice. Because an awful lot of people say they can take that suffering themselves. That anything I've done wrong, I I will bear for myself. We look at Jesus in the garden and we see the agony on the God-man. We can't bear that sin ourselves. We can't bear even a little bit of that sin ourselves. That would crush us completely as it crushed Jesus. We can't be crushed. We won't come back. We can't take that ourselves. So we need to hope and put our hope in Jesus, the one who loves us so much, the one who comes back again and again and again when we keep falling asleep, when we keep going wrong. We need to go back to him because he is the only source of life. And he is the one who brings an end to suffering and the agony. Um, thank you. It's been a big, sort of very deep session. I understand that. And th- these things I've been lying in bed at night thinking about, actually. And we do really need to pray about this. So we're just going to have a little time of prayer at the end. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to let you guys maybe pray for each other if you want to pray in groups, or maybe even... Actually, let's just pray in silence. Um, I I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Um, I'll just leave the time. So so let's just have a bit of silence now while we just contemplate um, all of this. And then we'll we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for all you went through for us. We praise your name for being a God who would come and suffer for us. We pray that we can know your love more and more in our lives, that we would open our eyes, that we would wake up, and that we would see your love working in our lives. We pray that we could trust in you more, that we could love you more, that we could put our faith in you. We pray that our lives wouldn't be about ourselves, about trying to just remove some minor suffering, but that we would turn and trust you in our sufferings. We pray for each one of us who are going through things right now. We pray that you would come and show your amazing love to each person in each of those situations. We pray that we could love like you loved. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will.